If you have a Bible with you, um, please open to Matthew chapter 18, Gospel of Matthew chapter 18, or it's printed there in your bulletin if you want to follow along there. Um, I did a uh, funeral service a couple of weeks, a week and a day ago, I guess, um, here at the Lutheran Church, and I recognized again one of the differences that Presbyterians have. I was told this the first time I ever visited a Presbyterian church. I was raised well as a Baptist, you know, and uh, a friend took me to a Presbyterian church. He said, you need to know two things before we start. He said, one, we say debt. That is in the Lord's Prayer. We don't say trespasses. We say forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The rest of the world says trespasses. And the second thing he told me is don't go down there at the end of the service. They don't have an invitation. So I was doing okay until I got to the trespasses part. It was explained to me um, that Presbyterians say debt instead of trespasses because Presbyterians would rather have their debts forgiven than their sins forgiven. And uh, I think there's probably something to that. But debt is actually a useful metaphor for forgiveness. Because um, anytime there's a breach in a relationship, somebody has to pay the cost of that breach if there's going to be restoration or reconciliation. And to forgive somebody is to pay it yourself. If in nothing else, foregoing vengeance uh, and retribution that you deserve for what someone's done to you, uh, to eat that yourself and pay it yourself is to pay the debt incurred uh, whenever there's a breach. And so the Bible uses terminology like debt to talk about forgiveness, especially this famous passage that we're going to look at today. It's the parable of the unmerciful servant or the unforgiving servant uh, that Jesus uh, gives here in response to one of the strangest things he says to anyone as a result of, uh, as an answer to a question about forgiveness. How often should you forgive? And what he says is not just surprising, it's scandalous. It, it, it doesn't resonate with you immediately if you think about it with what is the right and good and just thing to do, the nice thing to do, what a good person would do. His answer about how we forgive is bizarre. It challenges our very sense of justice and it makes us wonder if Jesus is really being just in what he says about forgiveness. And so I think he does this because he doesn't want us to think either of two things. He doesn't want us to think that forgiveness is easy, but he also doesn't want us to think that forgiveness is impossible. And if we pay attention to it, we're, we're, uh, we're definitely pulled away from the easy idea. But it's pretty hard to get past the idea that forgiveness, real forgiveness, is impossible. So that's what we're going to think about together. Let me pray for us, and then we'll read the Scripture. Father, please uh, come and help us. Um, we believe what your Son has said is true, but um, it, it doesn't penetrate that easily into our hearts and minds and assumptions and I pray especially for people who are under the gun of some really vexing conflict right now that makes forgiveness hard. I pray you'd be especially gracious to them as we think about this. And I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Reading with me, beginning at verse 21. It says, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. And therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. 
And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seeing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. And he refused. And he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And so my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. Whew, though, that's a, <laughs> that's a hard answer. I'm, I'm going to draw on a couple of uh, books that I've read. I, I don't know, I've been a professional Christian for a long time, and I still think forgiveness is one of the hardest things to make sense of in the Christian life. And uh, so the people I've relied on most with this are Miroslav Volf, whose book Exclusion and Embrace is very good uh, on this, and I'd recommend that. And also Philip Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About Grace. It's been out for a while, but I reread some of it last week. It's very good. So one of the examples Yancey used um, in his book, talking about forgiveness and God's grace, was a story from Simon Wiesenthal, who wrote a memoir. He was a Polish-Jewish man uh, back in mid-century when National Socialism came and Germany invaded Poland. And uh, when they came to his house, um, they murdered his grandmother in the house in front of him. He was a, you know, a 19 or 20-year-old man. Took his mother, and they put her on a freight car that was jammed with other Jewish women, and took her away, and then they imprisoned him. And his prison detail was to work at a hospital. Um, to be basically a janitor uh, in a hospital for German uh, wounded from the war. And one day a nurse came up to him and she, she looked at him and she said, are you a Jew? And Which is a very uh, awkward and intense question at the time. It's also kind of a ridiculous question in his prison uniform with his gold star that he's wearing. Uh, but he says, yeah. And she says, well, come with me. And she takes him to this room. A man named Carl is there. She says is his name. Uh, the guy's bandaged uh, very badly. His whole head is bandaged except for his ears and his nose and his mouth. No eyes, anything that, uh, that Wiesenthal can see. And um, he says, are you a Jew? I want to talk to you. And he starts to tell him his story. Um, said that he was raised as a Catholic, but that had uh, left the faith pretty early on and gotten involved in the Hitler Youth and eventually had joined the SS and had been fighting at the um, Russian front for Germany. It's where he had sustained these injuries, and they were pretty much uh, fatal. He's going to die. He knows pretty soon. And he says, uh, but before I die, 
I had to tell the story to someone about something that happened and what we did. And his conscience is heavy over this. He says, when we were uh, at the Russian front, we entered a town that was, uh, had a lot of booby traps in it. And about 30 soldiers from my unit were killed. He says, so in revenge, we gathered up 300 Jewish uh, men, women, and children and crammed them into this three-story house. And then we poured gasoline around it and uh, lit it a fire. And then we encircled the house in case anyone tried to escape so that if anyone escaped, they could be shot. And he said, uh, describing this situation, he said that um, it was a horrible scene but he said when people did try to escape, some jumping from windows and some trying to run from doors, he says, uh, he said, we shot. Oh, God, we shot. He described other horrors than that. And then he told Wiesenthal, he said, I, he said I'm left with my guilt and racked with guilt. And what is obviously the last part of my life here. And he says, I, I've been longing to find a Jew that I could speak to if there were any Jews left. Uh, someone where I could beg forgiveness from a Jew. And without your answer, there's no way I can die in peace. So Wiesenthal said, so there he is. He's standing there in this room with this guy, and he says the whole weight of his race and all that he's seen and all his experience is pressing down on his shoulders, and he's wondering what is his obligation. He's there as a prisoner with the gold star on his chest and all of the memories of what's happened to him. And what's he going to do? He says, at last I made up my mind, and without a word, I turned and left the room. Um, are you sympathetic to Wiesenthal, not being able to forgive that man? I'm totally sympathetic to him. And I wonder what sense he would have been able to make of what Jesus says here. That you forgive in this drastic way, this uh, ridiculous way. 70 times 7, forgiving people. Um, because that everything in me recoils against that notion that I should forgive that way and that often. I mean, if nothing else, you'd say, if, it, if it were, you're forgiving somebody for something that's not all that terrible, you would say, at best, you're enabling them, right? You know, if you just keep forgiving somebody for doing something over and over and over again, you think, well, you're, you're kind of a fool to do it, and um, you're enabling their behavior, on a worse level, you'd say you're enabling their abuse. If someone is sinning in more serious ways against somebody else, you say you're, you're perpetuating their abuse by continuing to forgive them. Um, there was an article in the Washington Post uh, two years ago. It's right after the uh, shootings Dylan Roof did at Ebenezer Baptist Church in Charleston, Ebenezer Amy Church in Charleston. You remember that? At his indictment, um, a lot of the people from Ebenezer came and spoke. It was one of those days where you think, I'm really proud to be a Christian today because person after person spoke about the mercy of God, hoping uh, despite how terribly Ruth had treated them and how terribly he had hurt them and grieved them with the loss of beautiful, loved friends and family members, that they uh, were willing to forgive him and hope for mercy from God for him. Speech after speech was like that, and it was very beautiful. But Stacy Patton wrote an article in the Washington Post entitled, Why Black America Should Stop Forgiving White Racists. And uh, 
made a pretty good point in her article. It was uh, the idea being that it just perpetuates cycles of violence for African Americans to keep uh, offering forgiveness so willingly and so freely to racists who have attacked them. And uh, the thing that probably made the point most poignant to me was she said, and I think she was quoting Ta-Nehisi Coates at this point, said, uh, I don't remember after 9-11 anyone uh, asking if we were going to forgive Osama bin Laden and the other terrorists, or I, I don't remember after the beheadings that ISIS did if uh, people were being asked that quickly if we're going to forgive. And she felt like it was something that was peculiar because of the reputation of African Americans in this country, especially since Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement, uh, been such an exemplary uh, force of forgiveness in the world that at some point it had become something that enabled uh, racists to mistreat them. I thought that was a fair point. Um, Jesus is saying here, 70 times 7, you forgive. Does that enable abusers? It might. I'll say this. He's not saying that uh, to forgive means to uh, pretend things never happened. It doesn't mean that you don't leave a situation in which you're being abused. Uh, uh, the church defends those who leave situations where they're being abused. Uh, it doesn't contradict forgiveness, but forgiveness is a lot more complicated in situations like that. And it doesn't mean that uh, you naively put yourself in danger for the sake of forgiveness. But without oversimplifying it, you have to, you have to think about the ethic that Jesus has given us here. You know, He's saying, I want you to have mercy on other people in the same way that I've had mercy on you. I want you to forgive other people the same way that I've forgiven you. And so my question to you is, is there any sin in your life that you've confessed 490 times plus? I've got a bunch. I mean, that's no big deal for me to think that there's something 490 times I've had to confess to God as a sin. Um, it's common in my life with God. And the idea here is... Uh, it's less scandalous to think about forgiving other people in that light. As I have been forgiven means that I've come back to God that many times and many more and expected to be forgiven. I expect the next time I go, I will be forgiven again. And he's saying, if you have that expectation with me, if you think that kind of mercy is possible in a relationship with me, then I want you to reflect that in your relationships with other people. That you forgive as you have been forgiven. And that makes his answer a little bit less scandalous. It doesn't make it easier to forgive, but it makes it less scandalous to forgive. I mean, what though, what do you make of this idea of the 490 times, which really just means infinity. I mean, it's not saying 491 is it. I'm cutting you off. I'm not forgiving you anymore. He just means you just keep forgiving. Um, but obviously, if someone comes back that often, they're being superficial, Right? How serious is their sorrow and repentance? You think, really? You know, I mean, after the third time, I didn't believe a word you said when you came to ask forgiveness of me. I'm, I'm not a fool. Um, it's ridiculous to think that this could happen. You're being superficial. So how does Jesus' ethic play out there? Like, I, it's obviously not perfect. It's not someone saying, I will never, ever do this again. I assure you, you can trust me. This will not happen again. Uh, therefore, please forgive me. We hardly ever get to forgive anybody on those terms. Yeah. If you're really in a relationship with them. What do you do with superficial repentance? Well, the ethic is as you have been forgiven, so you forgive. 
Have you gone to God with superficial repentance? Have, should God look at you and say, seriously, you want me to forgive you again for that? Like, what, what kind of a chump do you think that I am to take you seriously when you say you're sorry when you repeatedly come back to me with the same things? But how have you been forgiven? You've been forgiven not only when your, your repentance was superficial, you've been forgiven when you didn't repent. Um, you've been preemptively forgiven, for that matter. When we were still His enemies, Christ died for us. When He was dying on the cross, Jesus didn't say, tell me, are you really deeply sorrowful and repentant for what you're doing to me right now and promise never to do it again in the future? Okay, then I forgive you. He didn't say that, did He? He said, uh, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. He preemptively forgave them. Um, so, yes, the idea is that we forgive when repentance is superficial. We forgive even if people don't repent. Now, I'll say this. Um, a lot of the most complicated forgiveness situations are when people aren't repentant. Right? You're called on to forgive somebody, but they're not sorry, and they're not changing. And in that situation, you're not going to be able to be reconciled to them unless they repent. But you can still forgive them. Um, if they've injured you badly, there was a speaker this week at the conference that talked about this. If, you're, if you've injured someone badly or they've injured you badly, you can forgive them. It's still going to take a while to get over the injury. It still hurts for a while. That doesn't go away immediately. Real forgiveness is, takes a long time and usually is a process. But it's a willingness to say, I'm going to eat the cost of this sin in our relationship. I'm not going to hold this against you any longer. And if they are willing at any point to crack a door open for reconciliation, it means that you're willing to walk through it as far as you're able to. So you can't necessarily be reconciled to everyone. Some people you're trying to forgive are dead, right? And then how do you do that? You can forgive without being reconciled. Um, but what about when forgiveness offends your sense of justice? Where your sense of justice recoils from forgiveness. Like um, Wiesenthal, when he was standing in Carl's room and being asked to forgive the man for these atrocities. It felt immoral to him to say, I forgive you. It seemed like uh, not just something that was hard to do, but it was the wrong thing to do. And... Um, I think unless you feel that recoil of justice, you're probably not really being asked to forgive anybody. You, you may be being asked to excuse somebody, but until your sense of justice is provoked, you're probably not really dealing with forgiveness on the heavy level. Because forgiveness on that heavy level is, is almost always miraculous. It's something that God does for us and through us, enables us to do that we can't do on our own. And our sense of justice is really... Uh, What's at stake in a lot of forgiveness? You know, what do I do with my sense of right and wrong and the way things ought to be when it's been so badly violated and offended? What do I do with that? And the answer to that, surprisingly, um, is that you take that to the vengeance of God. That our sense of justice that recoils at forgiveness is really only comforted by knowing that God is a God of vengeance. I know that sounds strange to say, but the only way that we can keep from taking our own vengeance when we're really provoked is to believe that God reserves vengeance to Himself. That He is just and He is going to handle justice and the settling of accounts. 
and that we can forgive knowing that justice is left to God instead of to us. And that's a hard thing to do. You know, we say in the Apostles' Creed that we believe in the forgiveness of sins. But several lines up from that in the Apostles' Creed, we say, I believe Jesus is coming again to judge the quick and the dead. And without Jesus coming to judge the quick and the dead, it's almost impossible for us to believe in the forgiveness of sins for other people because we're dependent on God. We can be nonviolent because we know that God sees and acts and He doesn't ignore injustice. He hears the cries of the oppressed. And so we don't have to act as vigilantes in our own relationships because God has reserved judgment to Himself. Now that's a, that's a weighty thing to say, I, I realize. But ultimately, if you're under serious provocation to forgive, uh, knowing that God hears the cries of the oppressed is part of what enables you to forgive. But ultimately... You know, Jesus' parable here is just to say to us, do you really believe in the forgiveness of sins or not? It's easy to say in the creed, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Usually what I mean by that is, I'm willing to excuse people who, who uh, are excusable. You know, if they did something, that I, that's understandable, I know, it's okay, you're having a bad day, it's okay, I forgive you. Um, but when we say I believe in the forgiveness of sins, we mean, I believe that God forgives the unforgivable. I believe that God has forgiven me the unforgivable. And so I'm able, at least I'm called, to forgive the unforgivable for other people. And that's very hard. But ultimately, if there's no mercy for Carl, the SS soldier, then there's no mercy for me. If there's no mercy for him, there's no mercy for me. And Jesus doesn't pull the punch at all, does He? At the end, you know, He says, So my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And He's not saying that you earn forgiveness by being such a forgiving person. That, that's, that doesn't even make any sense, really. None of us is that forgiving. He's saying the true sign of somebody who is in a relationship with Jesus who's experiencing forgiveness is a willingness to look at other people through those eyes and say, I can forgive you because I've been forgiven so much. Um, I'm the big debtor, and so I can forgive you the big debt. But it's hard, right? Says the guy when he went out and found the other servant, he choked him. <laughs> it's like, like for me, that's usually metaphorical, but I know exactly what it feels like. And I want to choke you because it was a hundred denarii. That's about a hundred days' wages. So it wasn't a small debt. It wasn't an overwhelming debt, but it's money he was going to miss, right? A hundred days, three months worth of pay. He owed him that much. Um, and so he wants to choke him. You owe me this. It's not right. It's not fair that you would not pay me back. And you give me this sorry excuse like, I'm sorry, have patience with me. I'll pay you back. I promise, man. I promise I'll pay you back. And I'm like, no, you won't. You won't. I know you won't. I'm going to throw you into prison until you pay it all back. Doesn't it sound kind of nice to, to li you could live in a place where you could throw people in prison until <laughs> they paid you back? Um, Unless you're the guy that owes it. I guess that would be bad. But, you know, this is this choking, this is where grudges come from and feuds come from and bitterness in your uh, later life comes from is this recounting of grievances against you that you're not willing to forgive. And it's common to all of us. Common to all of us. Uh, Yancey told a story about a, a couple in Texas who uh, had an argument one day, a married couple had an argument about how much, I think it was the wife, had spent on sugar at the store. And they stopped talking to each other. 
and began to live on separate sides of their house. Eventually, the guy took a lumber saw and cut the house in two, moved part of it around behind a copse of trees, but on the same acre, they lived in these separate houses for the rest of their lives. Never talked again over sugar. Um, I assume that's an extreme example. My uh, great-grandfather went down the road to the sisters who you know, didn't have a great reputation in town, and when he came back, my grandmother with her own hands built a room onto the side of their house in which he lived for the rest of their marriage. Um, well, it's good to have a high view of marriage, I guess, right? <laughs> These people don't believe in divorce. So, uh, but yeah, grudges, right? You, you know what grudges can do. You've probably seen in your own family how bitterness can grow and grudges can grow. And you know in your own arguments how righteous anger blinds you if you think you're right and you've been wronged. You can't see the extent of your own debt. This, this 10,000 talents that the guy owed um, his, his master, in today's dollars, that's about a gazillion. Right? It's, a, it's an unimaginable amount of money. When the guy says, oh, have patience with me, I'll pay you back, everyone would have laughed because there's no way he could have paid him back. It's way too much money from ever to have paid back. Of course, that's how we talk to God, right? Well, give me another chance. What I need is a second chance and I'll do better. And, you know, it's like, yeah, sure you will, right? Of course you will. You're not going to. Because you're the big debtor is the point of the thing. You're the big debtor. God has forgiven you the big debt. What you're being asked to forgive other people is a smaller debt than what you've been forgiven by God. But we we don't like to think that way. I've been wronged. I'm in... I'm a victim. I'm just. My cause is right. The principle is true. I should crush you. I should hate you. You should pay me back. I should throw you in jail. I'm going to choke you. Um, I'm right about this. But Jesus says what you're wrong about, what you're blind about, is who you are and what kind of debt you've been forgiven. You're the big debtor. Um, You're the big debtor. When you see the 10,000 talent debt, that's you in the story. Um, then you realize with God what you need is not a second chance from God. You need a dying Savior to make you right with God. You need a Savior like Jesus. Not just a second chance, not just an excuse, you're excused from God, but you need to be forgiven by someone who pays the debt of your breach with God, of your rebellion and your autonomy. And Jesus is the one who puts His own blood on the ground for our sakes. He pays the debt for us. So, makes you see yourself differently. You're the big debtor. And makes you see God differently too. That He's a king with a heart of mercy. And that His mercy is wide enough for anybody. I mean, I'm assuming you're thinking in terms of being the person who has a lot to forgive someone else. Uh, you may be the person here who's thinking, I've crossed lines that I can never uncross. God can never forgive. God can never have anything to do with me anymore and that's not true uh, we're all the big debtor you're probably just the only one in here who's honest about it who sees it clearly right? all of us need a savior like Jesus to die for us but there's no sin so big that what Jesus has paid isn't enough to cover it and so if your conscience is weak and trembling before God because of the memory of what you've done uh, believe that what Jesus did is bigger than your sin it's bigger than your sin but if your struggle is to forgive, then the logic's pretty simple. You've been forgiven the big debt, you can forgive each other. 
you can forgive each other. Give you another example from Yancey to close. Uh, this is from Walter Wink, actually, that he quotes about uh, there's a couple of Christian peacemakers who are working in Europe after the war. This was probably seven or eight years uh, after uh, VE Day. But he went to a Bible study in Poland, Polish Christians there, and came with a proposition. He said, look, I, I, I know some West German Christians who would like to meet with you. Um, because what they want to do is they'd like to ask forgiveness for what West Germany did during the war to Poland and to begin to build a new relationship. Would you be willing to meet with them? And so they all just sat there dead silent. One of them finally said, what you're asking is impossible. Every stone in Warsaw is covered with blood we cannot forgive. We cannot forgive. So they dropped it. It went on with their service. And at the end of the service, uh, they were coming to a time when they were going to pray the Lord's Prayer together. So they were going through the prayer. And when they got to the line, forgive us our trespasses, <laughs> says they all stopped praying. And the same guy who had spoken it before and said, it's impossible, we can't do this. He said, uh, okay, he said, I must say yes to you. He says, I could no more pray the Our Father. I, I could no longer call myself a Christian if I refuse to forgive. Humanly speaking, I can't do it, but God will have to give us the strength. That's it. It's pretty simple. You have been forgiven the great debt by Jesus. So forgive each other. Now let's pray.